0: Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show, we have a special guest and we're going to be talking about special issues, ethical issues which have been raised by the COVID crisis. This is a conversation about all the stuff that's come up in COVID and which raises ethical questions. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by... Anthony Fisher, the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney and someone who is well and truly qualified to speak on these questions. Welcome, Bishop Fisher.
1: Great to be with you, Peter, and your listeners.
0: Excellent. Before we get started, don't forget that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app and that way you won't miss an episode. Right. So what ethical issues has the COVID crisis raised? Well, firstly, I guess we should talk about what ethical issues diseases themselves, communicable diseases, raise in a, in a general sense. So things such as, what lengths can you go to to avoid you know, infection? What are the reasonable efforts you should make? And, and what's an unreasonable effort? That kind of thing. Do you think that we've learned anything or that things have been highlighted by this crisis in that area?
1: Well, I think the crisis certainly has underlined for us our vulnerability as human beings, indeed as as rational animals, the animal side of us. Uh, is subject to disease and, and decay and even death. And uh, perhaps we always know that, or it's the back of our minds, but this has really brought it to the, f- the front of our consciousness. I think from an ethical point of view, uh, some basic things are underlined by this experience we've been through. One is that protecting our life and health is very important. Uh, Because we value life and health so highly, we properly do a lot of things uh, to protect that, uh, to support our own life. Uh, We we feed ourselves, we wash ourselves, we take ourselves off to the doctor when we're sick. A lot of life, in fact, is about our health. A second thing is that, that protecting each other's life and health is very important also. So, of course, parents know that because they devote a lot of their energy to the the health and life of their children. Uh, but children know that too, because I, I have elderly parents in a nursing home, and I'm very aware that I don't want to be bringing them COVID because they're especially vulnerable as old people. So, we're both protecting ourselves and each other.
0: That's been a big part of this crisis, hasn't it? Being not necessarily worrying about our own personal health, especially for younger people. There's been almost an aura of, I I, even if I get it, I won't be hurt by it, really. Although some recent reports have suggested this might not be always the case, but then you know the older people very much are, are vulnerable.
1: Yes, I think the the risks to younger people we know are are less, even if they're not uh, zero. But younger people could be bringing it to their parents and grandparents, to 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 people who are more vulnerable. And so we've all got to take this very seriously. That said, protecting our life and health, and even protecting each other's life and health, isn't all that matters in life. Right. Uh, we've also got to value other things like love, friendship, family, uh, like our work and leisure, our our, our contributions that we make uh, to to our world and to each other, uh, the experience of 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 learning, which is a big issue with our kids going to school. Yes. Uh, the the experiences we have of of beauty by being able to go outside and enjoy <laughs> the world uh, and and so on so many levels that a rich life is not just about physical life and health right it's about a lot more and as a bishop I'd have to insist that amongst the lot more is our spiritual health it's the the great good of being able to 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 pray and worship together. Mm. Uh, as a community of faith. And for a lot of of believers, this has been, there's been an extra hardship in this time that not only can't they be near many of their relatives and friends and work colleagues, but they're not also able to be near their brothers and sisters in faith and to worship God in the normal way.
0: Well, we intend to open up a lot of those issues as we go forward, perhaps looking at them all separately. But the the key point there is that there's more to life than just simply being alive and That's so right. if we if we're all That's there's isolated no algorithm
1: in- no. there's no algorithm for this there's no there's no formula by which you can say well I should give up this much health in order to have this much of other things in life <laughs> there's no simple neat answer to that this is part of why as human beings it's very important that we develop The virtue of prudence, that we're actually good at making good judgments, that we practice that and that we point out to each other when we get it wrong so we can maybe get it better next time.
0: I think the length of this crisis has actually highlighted some of this because when it first began, we have a lot of people were okay about being locked away for a short time, but as it sort of drew on, um, most of us started to realise actually we're really missing all the other things that make life worth living and that are important in life, and therefore the pressures, if you like, came in. And some of those pressures we haven't mentioned yet is the, the right to work. We've already mentioned the right to worship, uh, social lives, um, that sort of thing. But can we pause for a second and talk about the issues that have been raised in healthcare? Was that the subject of your doctoral thesis, A uh, proper allocation of healthcare funding or something like that?
1: That's right. I was looking at what was a just way of allocating healthcare when you can't give everything to everyone.
0: Right. Well, I mean, in this this crisis, we've seen several uh, situations around the world, and to a lesser extent here in Australia, where uh, the allocation of health resources has come up as, a, as an issue. Do you think that we've come across ethical dilemmas here in Australia because of COVID so far, or do you think there's some coming?
1: I, I think we've been lucky in Australia to not be uh, so pressured in our hospital systems that we've had to turn people away, that we've had to make hard choices about who gets the ventilator. But they've certainly had to do that in other countries. I know early on when Italy was especially hard hit, there were big decisions having to be made about who would have access to the limited number of ventilators. And similar issues arose in Britain and other countries. In fact, a guy I lived with when I was doing that doctorate that you mentioned, he died of COVID. He was an elderly Dominican priest. And he was one of those who didn't get a ventilator uh, because they had only a limited number. So that has been a real issue. And I think we have to question the notion that you just always prefer the younger person if you've got limited resources. Uh, there, there's a kind of instinct that we have, don't we, in, in emergencies, women and children first. You, you, They haven't had as much of an opportunity to have a life. So we we give them extra attention. But the fact is, the purpose of hospitals, the purpose of healthcare is exactly for the sick, and, and a large proportion of those will be the elderly. So, we mustn't lose sight of that. Sometimes it will be the case that an elderly person will benefit more from a treatment than a younger person would, in which case we should be preferring the elderly person over the younger mm. person if we've got limited resources. So, uh, I think we have to question a certain ageist prejudice that has been about since the the, the COVID pandemic uh, went viral. Has
0: it hasn't been, um, I, I don't know the answer to this question, has it hasn't been a bigger problem in Western countries because our populations tend to have a longer lifespan, like we've kept our pe- people alive with better health systems, et cetera. Noticing the numbers coming through in India at the moment, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. but. We seem to be a vulnerable population, especially in Europe, I noticed that there was quite high rates of mortality, uh, and perhaps it's because they have a higher rate of very old people.
1: Yes. I, I think there's no doubt that across the Western world, we have an older population on average, and certainly a much larger cohort of people over 80 and even over 90 and over 100. Uh, and given that we know they are especially vulnerable, it is likely we're going to have higher death rates in Europe than in places with younger populations. Uh, but that said, as we've already mentioned, we can't be complacent even about young people because uh, it can be dangerous to them too. Hmm. I mean,
0: anecdotally, it's it's uh, you know it's not a given either way. And I, one of my friends fathers is was written up in the news recently because he was over 90 and he's one of the, i think he's australia's oldest covid survivor um whereas my um an uncle of mine who's nowhere near that age uh, unfortunately passed away to covid um a month or so ago so mm. it's just it's not it's not a given the age thing is a kind of a too simple a definition
1: yes if the, the guy you mentioned who's over 90 if someone had had a rule that we're just not going to give treatment to people over 80 well, he'd be dead. Yes. Was actually, we know, with the right treatment, he there he is now uh, alive and kicking. And so, I, I think we have to, we certainly have to be cautious about any ageist prejudice getting into our the ethics of healthcare.
0: What about the fair distribution of resources? In terms of, at the moment, lots of healthcare is concentrated uh, in Western countries, particularly on the eastern seaboard in Australia. You'd have to say. I shuddered to think what would happen if if um, COVID spread into some of the communities in the in the middle of Australia, um, where they don't have easy access to the the hospitals and things we have. Um, we seem to have provided for the bulk of the populations, but also the wealthiest, perhaps. Is that a fair comment to make about our distribution, or how, or is it just a simply a, a practical matter of being where the people are?
1: Uh, well, I think you're right that in fact we are have an over-concentration of our health services in this country in the big cities and in particular parts of the big cities. That's not necessarily because of a, a prejudice for the middle class. Uh, it it reflects just where people were living when a lot of our hospitals were built, and a lot of that infrastructure is now a century old. So, what we're asking there is where were people living a hundred years ago? Right. Well, In this city, they were living, uh, many of them in the city or the eastern suburbs, and so we have a lot of our health services are in the east or in the middle here in Sydney. But of course, the population now is very largely concentrated in the west. And so that's an issue for us, uh, whether we can get either get people to the services quickly or move the services back out to where they are. Go beyond the cities, and there's no doubt uh, you're much more vulnerable, not just to COVID, but a lot of other things uh, getting you if you're out in the rural and remote parts of Australia uh, and if you can't get quickly to a, a major hospital, and in this case, with respect to COVID, if you've got a bad case, a hospital with, with ventilation. Right. I. I think, obviously, we can't have a hospital beside everybody's house, <laughs> so it's, it's always going to be the case that some people have to travel further than others to get that sort of care. But in a country as, as big as ours, it is a, a particular challenge, which a lot of other countries don't have, of how we make sure everyone has access.
0: Right. I mean, I'm just talking anecdotally again, but a good friend of mine who works in mental health care... Um, is telling me that if he worked in the north, um, just north of the city, as in over the bay, uh, he finds it easy to get funding for the mental health care. But when he moves west, uh, anywhere west of Parramatta, it's very, very difficult to get the same funding for the same problems for the same populations. Uh, It's not necessarily about uh, infrastructure. I mean, there seems to be uh, like a... I don't know if it's an electorate-based thing or if it's a geographical thing or if it's just... Um, a different understanding of things. But um, mental health is a big issue, it has been raised, and perhaps we could go there now, as uh, mental health as an issue of COVID. It's certainly come to the fore, and I think I saw some statistics saying suicides had risen considerably in this time. Mm. Uh, do you think that care for mental health should be on the same level as the physical health? or, or is- I,
1: A point I'd like to make about this first is that People feeling lonely at this time because they're isolated, because they're trapped at home and not able to go to their family or go to their work or go to their usual leisure and their friendship groups and so on, feeling lonely or a bit down because of that is not a mental sickness. (laughs) In fact, it would be a mental sickness if you didn't feel lonely and a bit down about that. And so I, I think there's, a, there's a, a tendency, a lot of commentators at the moment, to put all those human, emotional, and social issues in the basket of mental health issues, but but it's not it's not in fact the case. Uh, it, it, it's proper that if you feel grief after somebody you love has died, that's the right reaction. <laughs> if you feel lonely because you can't see your own spouse, who's in a, who's in another state and is not allowed out, or you're not allowed in that you feel lonely is the right reaction. And so, uh don't call it all a mental health problem. It, what it is is rather that we where a lot of the the good things of life are being denied us at the moment. Right. That said, things like uh being down or being anxious can shade into mental health problems. So we know depression can become very serious indeed and even uh, result in suicide. Uh anxiety of various kinds can become anxiety disorders of one kind or another. So we take that very seriously. And I think one thing that we've been saying a lot in recent years is that we've got to look out for each other in this matter. You don't just leave it to the mental health professionals. Uh, We've got to try and notice if someone around us is not their usual self, is behaving strangely, is becoming very uh, closed in on themselves or whatever. We should be ready to to ask them at the very least just the human. How are you? Uh, and be friendly and and perhaps help to distract them from whatever is leading to their being down. Uh, but also be ready to, to 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 press them to get help from a professional if if we think there's something more going on. Right. It was not so
0: long ago that I interviewed uh, a specialist from Western Sydney who deals with people who are suffering from addictions, trying to battle with addictions. And they were saying that, in particular, alcohol use and the, and the serious consequences of overuse of alcohol have risen by a significant amount in this time, um, which is probably an indication, I don't know, perhaps of boredom to some extent, but it's very much of coping mechanisms which are unhealthy.
1: I think it's likely that people are abusing substances, alcohol um, prescription drugs and, and illicit drugs more than more than usual because at the moment they're under pressures they're not used to uh, because of the isolation, because of the living close perhaps to, to other people because we're all trapped at home together and we're fighting all the time. <laughs> um, uh, th- th- there's all sorts of extra pressures that come with not having your normal life. And uh, we are trying as a community to put extra services there to get to give people ways of dealing with that. I've had the experience of, of, of the telehealth, of seeing a doctor through uh, Zoom. <laughs> uh, well, I know they're doing a lot of that for, by way of, of counselling at the moment, where you can, if you can't get to a counsellor, you're in a rural remote area or people are isolating, you can still have that kind of assistance. And that's real progress. I think we'll, con- we'll continue that even after COVID's finished.
0: Yeah, I think there's been a lot of positive things and perhaps that's one where we could go later in the conversation but one last thing on the access we've talked a lot about access to people and access to to loved ones etc one of the biggest ones that's come up is access in times of like quite extreme situations such as we know a relative is dying Um, or perhaps we know a relative is quite fearful and lonely in a home and I know you've um, got personal experience of that could you speak to the firstly the general idea of closing down nursing homes just as a kind of a blanket um, strategy? And secondly, of what level of compassionate access is, is ethically warranted?
1: Well, I, I, I know how this bites very personally because my mum and dad are in a nursing home and for much of this year, I've not been allowed to visit them. I've only just recently been allowed at last back in physically to see them, not just through FaceTime, but but, but directly. Uh, and I, that has been a real hardship for them, especially, I think, for my mum and, and, of course, for me too. It's a huge loss. Now, many families are experiencing that. Of course, we've had to be especially protective of the elderly. We know that in some nursing homes, lots of people died because it it, it, it spread rapidly uh, and was deadly for a lot of, of the, the people living in the nursing homes. So, of course, we're going to be very cautious around those. And I understand the 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 natural instinctive response of health authorities has been to just basically build a high wall and a moat around uh, the elderly. Okay, I get that. However, we also know that the elderly often are already lonely, Probably already have a low-level depression because they're just they're lonely and they're not doing all the things that used to give them satisfaction uh, and 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 interest in life. And now we we cut off perhaps the only visitors they ever had. uh, The at least in in recent years we cut off uh, such activities as they might have had of interest. Uh, The the, the opportunity to get out occasionally or to engage in some social activities even within the, the, the aged care facility, a lot of those things have stopped because they're keeping people on their particular floor or in their particular rooms. Well, those are big losses. And I think there is a challenge for our aged care system to take that seriously and therefore to be thinking long and hard about are there ways... We can bring people in safely to be near their relatives. I've heard of, of nursing homes, for instance, who have arranged a glass wall. It's a bit like, I suppose, some prison cells. Yeah. Where people are brought in in prisons to at least see each other through a glass wall. It's not ideal. But a lot of, of older people will find that a lot more human than FaceTime which they mightn't be as comfortable with as younger people might be uh, my old, my own dad when he when he goes on FaceTime sometimes i get to see his ear rather than his face because <laughs> it's not the way he's used to talking to me
0: i remember when my youngest boy was in intensive care and was quite ill uh, nearly dying in fact the only time my father met my youngest child was in that state he he never actually lived to see him in um it just personally hold him I don't think anyway but he saw him through a glass wall in the intensive care it, it's not a new idea in that sense you know you do what you can with the circumstances you have
1: that's right and and I think our, our aged care facilities will have learnt some things by from this experience that we'll bring to the next time we have a pandemic uh, about how can we adapt, We've learned, for instance, that we've got to make sure the staff are not working in three different places because then if they pick something up in one, they'll take it to three. We've learned uh, uh, how you can bring people in safely, testing temperature, investigating their, their recent movements, uh, bringing them into a special area, cleaning the area afterwards and so on. We've, we've learned measures. Uh, and I think that that's the kind of thing we have to, instead of saying, oh, we'll just close up shop. Uh, we've got to think that well, no, we've got to go on with life. How can we make that as safe as possible?
0: So the closing up of shops seems to be at least partially a panic move to to deal with. Look, like, we we don't want to be to blame for something, but partially it's also not wanting to be the one who everyone blames because we've had we've seen a um, an inquiry in Victoria. Is it? Is an inquiry or is it a commission of some kind into how the nursing homes failed the older people in mm. their in their care? Um, and it almost seems as if we have this kind of instinct to turn around and immediately look for someone to blame, uh, we yep. end up creating a culture where we're reacting out of fear of blame rather than care for the people. And, you know, we can't be blamed for their mental state, so we'll just shut them down so they can't physically be hurt in some way
1: look you're completely right and there are a lot of sides to this like we we are living in a culture of indignation where we've got to be cranky about something all the time (laughs) and we've got to blame someone all the time and so covid's on who can we blame we'll blame the chinese we'll blame the government we'll blame the healthcare facilities we'll we'll blame the security guards and so on and of course people make mistakes and sometimes big mistakes we all make mistakes uh, but that doesn't mean that at that point we've got to turn on them as a mob of vigilantes. Right. Sometimes we've just got to find a way to forgive and move on and learn from the experience, and and that applies here as in the rest of life. I, I th- there's an interesting story uh, of one of my predecessors, Archbishop Michael Kelly, uh, who in the last pandemic, in 1918, faced. Uh, the the people that got the Spanish flu were, were taken to the quarantine station in Manly and basically just locked in there. And no one was allowed in and no one was allowed out. And uh, there was a woman there, Nurse Annie Egan. She'd been heroic. She'd trained at St. Vincent's Hospital. She'd gone over on a hospital ship to collect the soldiers, the Aussie soldiers, and bring them back. Of course, the Aussie soldiers brought back Spanish flu with them. Uh, And she got it, and she died of it. And before she died, the only thing she wanted, she desperately wanted the last rites. She wanted a priest at her bedside to give her anointing, to absolve her, give her the apostolic pardon, to give her viaticum, communion for the dying. And it was refused by the, the authorities. Well, my predecessor, Archbishop Kelly, marched up to the gates of the quarantine station in Manly with a Monsignor on either side, like like two two uh, props in a rugby scrum, demanding entry. Uh, and they refused it, of course, but he he made sure there were lots of photographers around uh, to see this. Uh, and as a result, uh, within the week, the government had changed the regulations and allowed, the priests could get in to give people the last rites. Again, it's another example of where in panic, we can we can fail to see there are other things that matter. And in the case of, of, of Nurse Annie Egan, the one thing she desperately wanted was denied her at the end. If we have elderly people, especially if we have dying people, we have to be thinking, how can we make that as humane as possible? Uh, and not just make it about the the mechanics the machinery of ventilation and the the the, the maximizing uh, the 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 hygiene and the, the minimizing the risks
0: well, there's a huge amount of pressure on people at the moment because their job is on pause now the government of australia has helped a little bit with that with the um, JobKeeper job keeper program and that doesn't help help everyone and a lot of companies are struggling to survive in this time so it seems as if there's a lot of pressure on people particularly in a in a time when so many people are mortgaged and in a lot of debt and they're trying to racing to keep ahead of their debt uh, they seem to this seems to be a, an additional pressure would you agree or perhaps i should ask you to comment on this it seems that the pressure with relation to economic problems is mounting now in terms of our our response to COVID and there's a huge amount of pressure to open up even as Europe comes into its second wave of infections.
1: I think that the the first uh, response when the pandemic hit us was the public health response. It was basically to say what matters, all that matters, is saving life. Right. After we'd done that for a few months and realised how that was messing up our life, uh, (laughs) then politicians started to say, Actually, two things matter, saving (laughs) life and saving the economy. In fact, there's quite a lot of things that matter, and saving life and saving the economy, even those two are not enough. We actually need other things like like love and truth and beauty and so on in our lives. So I think undoubtedly people are right to be saying now, uh, closing down the economy is a huge loss. Now, our work is the very place where many of us find a lot of our meaning and identity, our social contribution is through our work. It's not just about making an income for ourselves and our family. It's actually uh, the thing I do well. It's the thing I give. And so to not have that is a real loss for people. And also their colleagues at work are a big part of their life. And to not have their colleagues is also a real loss for a lot of people, and there's other sides to this too. So, okay, it's reduced by economists to dollars and cents, but in fact, we all know there's a lot more to the workplace and to 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 enterprise than just the dollars and cents of it. it it's a big part of our lives. I think our governments have done very well with job keeper and job seeker, and 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 basically. Uh, they they've broken through their usual ideological positions about for instance balanced budgets right <laughs> and said well no this is an emergency and we're going to have to be different right now and i and i think we we should pay tribute to that 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 basically uh, most of the time the different sides of politics and the uh, the nation and the states have have largely worked together on trying to help to get us through not just health-wise, but also economy-wise. Uh, that said, you're never gonna have a pandemic with no effects on the economy right. or on the culture yeah. or on the society. It was bound to hurt. It was bound to bring a recession. Uh, that, there's been no pandemic in history that hasn't brought a recession. Right. So there's only so much government can do about this. We all know that part of what a pandemic does is test our mettle, it's a time for courage, it's a time for perseverance, it's a time where our character can either shine or we can fall in a heap um, and and just become totally self-centred and and give up. And so I, I think, sure, governments need to help us here because this is big, this is much bigger than any of us individually to deal with. But we do our bit too. Uh, those of us who can work should work. Those of us uh, who have opportunities to help each other, to help the person next door who's now unemployed and in a bad way should be doing that. Uh, we, we should be looking out for each other and doing our best to get the economy back again, not just because of the dollars and cents, but because it's it underpins so much of the rest of, of our lives.
0: It has such a flow-on effect too. I mean, just in terms of, People being employed is not just about who's got the money, it's about that that person then buys something, that person does something else, and they help out somebody else. And if if half the people in my neighbourhood suddenly aren't buying or aren't able to live there anymore, the entire thing falls down. It's not just those people, it affects everybody. Having said that, I mean you read articles. Um, I saw in a Melbourne newspaper an article actually putting a price tag on how much the elderly, how much effort we should be putting into the elderly. I like draw a line in the sand, kind of thing, to say, yeah, it's all very good for us to put out a little bit of effort to help pe- other people, but when it comes to the, you know the family and your own mortgage, you, you've just got to deal with it. Can I rest on that a little bit? This is an issue we've brought up in another episode. Mortgages. Uh, and we, when we recorded that episode on mortgages, we didn't have anything of these circumstances in mind. Mortgages seem to put us on an edge to start with, like we're right on the cutting edge of survival kind of thing all the time.
1: Mm.
0: And when, when a crisis comes along and puts a little bit of pressure on it, there's a lot of people at breaking point simply because they were already there on bre- at breaking point before the crisis. It seems to have revealed something of a flaw in our economic structures
1: look there's no doubt that for some people this is the straw that breaks the camel's back they they were they were already mortgaged the hilt and struggling with repayments and suddenly their incomes dropped uh and we know that the, that the banks are in general being more lenient than they normally would be uh trying to find people ways of of paying it off differently or later uh, uh, they're not just moving straight in to repossess people's homes but it has left a lot of people feeling very insecure about their housing and therefore about all the rest that goes along with your housing. I think that again that's, and that's another example of how there are other things that matter than the dollars and cents that people have a sense of home that they have a place they're secure uh, that they have a roof over their children's head uh, where they're, they're warm and fed and the rest this is hugely important to people and if if our economic system doesn't enable that for a whole group of people we've got a problem right i would say there's been a little providence in all this though that interest rates now happen to be the lowest they have ever been <laughs> and so people uh, many people have been able to refinance at a lower a lower interest rate than they probably ever had before well, thanks be to God for that. because imagine if our interest rates were up at twenty percent as they've been at some times in our history, if that had happened at the moment when when some people are uh, losing their jobs and their incomes.
0: Hmm. That's a good point. Um hopefully that continues i It would be nice to see some of the the incredible wealth which is in the top end of our business world uh, actually being not just you know the stay of execution being given to us as if it was a gracious act, but some kind of that wealth flowing down a little bit to help the little guys as well. Some would argue they do that through their taxes. Let's hope they pay taxes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, moving on perhaps to something that it's quite clearly affecting us all, we're all sitting around uh, more or less twiddling our thumbs, I think, until this magical vaccine, which is going to solve all our problems, comes through. Now, firstly, there's yep. the issue of vaccines rarely are just a one-shot that solve everything. Then when we get past that issue, we've got to talk about the issue of ethically uh, obtained va- vaccines and what that means for Catholics in
1: particular. Well, certainly the whole area of vaccines is vexed. There are some people who are immediately suspicious about vaccines. Uh, there's, a, there's been enough ill effects out there that they've heard of or maybe even experienced that they're very suspicious of vaccines in general now we have a pandemic and it's killing people. Well, some people might say, I'm not so comfortable with vaccines, but in this case, I'd probably use it. And then you hear, but hold on, some of the vaccines being produced, they're using the cells uh, taken from a line of cells that derives ultimately from a little girl who was aborted in the 1970s. And that's very troubling for a lot of people, that, that they feel I don't want to be complicit in that in any way. I don't want to be tied up in the abortion fetal uh, cell industry.
0: That's not just a sense of kind of icky, ickiness or an emotional attachment to the idea. There is actually a moral issue at stake here, isn't there? It's it's not morally licit, for, specifically from a Catholic point of view. It's moral, not morally licit to take someone's life, even if it benefited all these other people.
1: Yes, there's both. There's a moral and emotional side to this, and if we're we're a well-integrated person, those things actually go hand in hand. Good. So we yep. <laughs> we naturally uh, feel uncomfortable uh, in the face of a moral evil, and so uh, we naturally feel uncomfortable in the face of the moral evil of of aborting a little girl and taking cells from her uh, to use for medical purposes. That said, that was 40 years ago. I think a person today that used such a vaccine could honestly say, I want no part of that abortion. I would never have cooperated in that. I'm not cooperating in that by having it because it's long ago happened. Uh, I would never want them to do another one in order to get more cells. Uh, So it's no part of, of what I'm about in receiving this vaccine or some of the others that are grown on the same cell line. Uh, that i'm I'm complicit or or cooperating in abortion uh, or or the fetal cell industry but there'll be other people who would, that want to take a real stance against this uh, that they they feel a real calling to to speak for the unborn and to speak against the the fetal tissue industry and and they'll probably be saying well I'm not going to use that vaccine even if, uh, it's not doesn't actually involve cooperation in the evil of that abortion all those years ago and, and I think these are both reasonable positions and what would be uh awful would be if we try and force people to use these vaccines uh and, and there have been a lot of talk that's that suggested that making it almost compulsory or making it compulsory uh we know the the uh the sort of the no jab no play rule uh, at the moment and people are talking about no jab no pay that you'll you'll not be allowed to work anymore, you'll not be allowed to get job keeper or job seeker anymore if you don't agree to have the vaccination. Well, that kind of coercion of people's consciences should make us Deeply uncomfortable. It seems targeted
0: more at the poor than anything, doesn't it? That that kind of thing, because the rich aren't as aren't as affected by that kind of regulation.
1: Well, it's true that that a richer person might be free to say, "Well, I'm, I don't mind if I don't get any help from government. I'm still not going to use this." Whereas some, for someone else, that's their food money. That's, yes, yeah, that's how they care for their children. But I I think there's a general principle in our healthcare uh, that we. We want someone's free consent before we do anything to their body, including putting substances in their body. Uh, And that's a pretty general rule. Uh, We very rarely break that. So to be talking about compulsory or as near as possible to compulsory vaccination is going right against our general principle that people should be fully informed and make a free choice for any healthcare intervention.
0: It seems not to respect other people's sensitivities so, and, and moral preferences too, because um, I didn't mean to use the word preference there, but you know you understand what I'm saying. It, hmm. Even if I don't think, now I'm, I personally have a, a discomfort with the idea of the vaccine, but if, if it were our only option, I believe the Catholic position is we could, under protest, take the only option available to us under grave circumstances.
1: Yeah, yes as as long as you're not yourself illicitly cooperating in the evil right. And as I've said in the case of this abortion it was forty years ago yeah there's nothing I'm doing now that's making that happen
0: that's right that's history but generally speaking I mean i've I've written to my MP and made it clear that how I where I stand about giving us an ethical alternative but I respect that there are others who don't feel the same way as I do and who have legitimate moral concerns and part of our free society is the respect for that freedom and it, it's not just a case of oh let's get as many vaccinated as possible and anyone who disagrees with me is obviously a lunatic who uh, needs to be coerced in some way That that's the beginning of a oh, i won't, don't want to say totalitarian but it's quite a dangerous precedent to set
1: yeah well we, we as australians we're signatories to to international covenants uh, that supposedly guarantee freedom of thought of conscience, of belief, if we really mean that as a country, if we really mean that as a democracy, we've got to give each other the space to think differently to each other and and not be trying to coerce everyone to think and behave exactly as I do. And so even if I do have the jab, uh, I, I can't universalise that and say, well, everyone else must choose the same way. <laughs> um, that, that That's... that's uh, you know, it's as you say, it's a totalitarian way of thinking. Right. Uh, in a in a country like ours, we do in general try and give each other the space uh, to be different to each other and to make different
0: choices. Hmm. It's worth mentioning that there are, in fact, possible alternatives out there. It seems that a, a, among many of the the possible vaccines currently being tested, there are quite a number of possibilities which are not um, going to be ethically compromised.
1: Yes, in fact, of the the vaccines in development and the vaccines being trialled at the moment around the world, the majority of them are not grown on fetal cell lines. So, it's very possible, in fact, even likely, that there's going to be a vaccine that doesn't have this particular moral problem. Uh, uh, But there, there are enthusiasts out there that would just say, whatever one comes on the market, that's the one everyone's going to have to have <laughs> on. You mustn't look at any other consideration.
0: It's also a little bit naive because vaccines aren't one-shot hits anyway. Because we're we probably, you know, have a mutation or something, have to deal with it. Yep. One other thing with the vaccines is that Australia seems to have been committed, along with quite a few other nations, to a kind of a pooled response. Like we've pulled a certain amount of money and resources into a joint. Um. I, I guess it's an account of some kind, and. And we've agreed that everyone in this pool of countries gets access to the vaccine afterwards. Have you
1: heard? You've heard of this? Yes, in Australia's, uh, as the United States, and a number of others have gone to to in in our case, uh, not just one but more than one of those uh, who have the vaccine development and effectively bought in advance uh, enough doses for our entire population. Right.
0: But it, the interesting part for me was that it's at least the way it was reported recently, and you've probably know more about this than than the reporter did. It seems as if there are a number of countries who've pre-committed to this, and the richer countries seem to have pre-committed according to their wealth, and therefore have provided perhaps even more opportunities for some of the poorer countries to get access to that. Am I reading that correctly, or is it
1: uh, this? This can work in two ways. Uh, Sometimes it works in the direction of basically the rich countries buy up the whole supply that there's likely to be in the first two years right. of the vaccine's production because you can never produce enough of it fast enough. Uh, so there's a risk that basically the rich countries will get it first and then may the others may not get it at all or only get it late. Uh, on the other hand, it's also the case that if you if you make vaccine uh, investigation and production profitable enough, you're likely to get much bigger supply. So, the, the more rich countries put money into this, the more likely there'll be a vaccine for everyone in the world. And in the end, it is in the interests even of the wealthy countries to eliminate this worldwide. That's you know, we got rid of smallpox worldwide, and that means none of us has to worry about smallpox. Right. Uh, but if it's still around in one country or another, we're all still vulnerable in one way or another, uh, particularly uh, if the vaccine isn't 100% effective uh, or if over time uh, growing numbers of people don't get vaccinated. So it's in all countries' interest to make sure that the poor of this world do have access to any vaccine that we achieve
0: it's certainly in our interest in terms of them coming and going from australia and our interaction with them but do do we also have a regional responsibility if you like we have poorer neighbors especially in the pacific islands and um papua new guinea perhaps and indonesia who are much less well off in terms of per capita income and, and accessibility do we have a responsibility from a Catholic perspective to care for those around us who are perhaps not as well off as we are?
1: Look, my own view would be that that our own immediate neighbours in the Pacific, and most of those are poor countries, who mercifully have had hardly any COVID at all, uh, but you know if it got into that population, they haven't got ventilators, they haven't got the kind of healthcare system that would cope at all well with this. I think we should be buying enough of any vaccine, an ethically uncompromised vaccine, for our region, not just for ourselves in right. Australia. Okay, it's not. It's you're not adding a huge number. It's not <laughs> like the the Fijian and Samoan populations are all that huge, but uh, we could do that. Uh, build that into the cost of what we're we're spending on our vaccines. Across the world, though, I think we've also got to think not just of our neighbours, because some of the poorest countries are only neighbour to other poor countries. Right, okay. So there's no one feeling a responsibility for them like we feel for Papua New Guinea or for Fiji. And and so I think we also have to think as a, a human family about the poorest members of our family. And, and so making sure... Whatever international institutions are out there, uh, whatever ways we have of 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 foreign aid, that we make sure uh, the poorest, the poor, will have access the same access that we have in Australia when the vaccine comes.
0: All right, we've just enough time to deal with one of the more important subjects and one you've been engaged personally with over these last um, months or so, and that is our freedom to worship. Now we've been quite aggressively shut down for, for for some good reasons in certain times in our our recent history um but interestingly there the seems to have been in places in australia at least at certain times a difference between the approach to churches and our worship services and other things so for example at one stage more people could go to a pub than could go to a church um or <laughs> the the there were you were okay to go to a black lives matter protest but you couldn't you couldn't come to a worship service or something like that so uh, could you perhaps fill us in on some of the issues there now clearly one of one of them is going to be we p- p- cooperate with legitimate rule of government in, an, in their attempt to protect health but the freedom for worship is a fundamental uh, part of our humanity
1: yep that's that's exactly right peter so I have been very active and I think church leaders in general have been in trying to ensure that we at least have equal treatment with other uh, similar venues and other similar activities. And it's still the case in this state, in New South Wales, the maximum number allowed for worship is 100 and that's in a big church. But a pub or club or casino or indoor sports event uh, place, uh, can have 300. And then some of the outdoor ones are allowing up to 40,000 in a stadium. Uh, well, what is the logic of saying you can have 300 in a big pub, but only 100 in St. Mary's Cathedral, which is probably 10 times the size of a pub? What's the logic of that when in fact, people in a, in a, in the cathedral are probably very compliant when it comes to social distancing and wearing masks it's a very much
0: more ordered experience too i mean you you, yes, you behave in certain that's patterns. what i mean by compliance yeah. yes
1: we're, we're, we're acting in ways that actually minimize the risk whereas people who've had a few drinks in a pub they're possibly not so good at social distancing <laughs> uh, or or wearing masks or whatever so it, it seems to me that there is a double standard here and it probably reflects the power of the hotel industry and others to lobby for a different standard for themselves. And fair enough, I'd, I don't blame them for trying. They've got to keep their businesses going. But I, I I, say to our political leaders, keeping people alive and keeping the economy going aren't the only things that matter. And and for, for uh, believers not being able to worship together is a huge loss. It's a huge loss to us spiritually and emotionally uh, and treat us at least equally to to similar venues and to similar activities. In fact, Australia in principle pays pays lip service to freedom of religion and so we should be actually very delicate, very uncomfortable with interfering with each other's worship. Uh, but for some reason, it was almost the first thing to be shut down uh, in in this country. There
0: seems to be something in particular that's slightly more poignant for Catholics in this, because of the fact the physicality of Catholic worship, the fact that we believe Christ is physically present in in the in the Mass, the the the, the activities of Catholics. When I was a Protestant, um, we used to joke about Catholics going to Mass, being Catholic aerobics, because there's so much physical <laughs> involvement and activity and standing and moving and and literally touching and tasting um, our Lord. Uh, that element of it seems to be more pressing, I think, amongst my Catholic friends, the physical element of it because of the physicality, the proximity, if you like, of worship.
1: I, I think that's right, Peter. I think it's true Catholics and probably Orthodox also. Yes. That— uh, we are a sort of touchy feely religion. Uh, we 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 see and smell and hear and taste the sacred. Uh, we don't just think it, and uh, that that matters hugely to Catholics uh, and Orthodox that we re- we believe we receive God's substance into our own substance. That it really matters to us to receive Holy Communion and to 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 lose. The Holy Eucharist for weeks and weeks and months and months is a real hardship, a real loss for Catholics. Uh, that's not to say, oh, we should get special treatment over Protestants or over Jews or Muslims. I've I've constantly argued for us all to be treated uh, more generously and together and on equal terms. But I think you're right to say it. it it, it cuts deeper for a lot of Catholics than it might for religions that say in the end it doesn't matter where you worship or whether you're with other people or not. Mm.
0: All right. Well, we're finishing up now, one last thing. In response to this reminder, this universal worldwide reminder of our mortality, what is a good Catholic response? Uh, what, what, do you have any final words of encouragement or exhortation for the people listening?
1: Look, I, I think Catholics talk of St. Joseph's death as a good death because he, he had our Lord with him. <laughs> he had our Blessed Mother with him. I mean, what a better way to die than to be surrounded by love and prayer and to be that intimate with God. And that's what we want for each other at the point of death. We want people to be surrounded by by love and by prayer, by the sacraments. We want the, the Christian community to be around them as they die so they have the best possible death. And this pandemic is a real opportunity for Christians to shine, to show our best, to be, to be willing to undertake some risk to ourselves if we're nurses in order to nurse the sick if we're priests, in order to bring the sacraments to the sick, if we're neighbours, in order to make sure that our next door neighbour is getting food and medicine, whatever they need. Uh, It's a real opportunity, like previous pandemics have been, to show Christian courage and generosity. You know, in the early Roman Empire, when the pandemics came through, the Antonine Plague and the Cyprian Plague, the Christians stayed when the others got out who had any money or power to do so. The Christians stayed and in those cities that had high Christian populations, the death rate was half or even less because they stayed and nursed and fed and looked after their neighbours. We've got to find ways of doing that again, of really shining as Christians and showing our generosity and hospitality in the face of the natural fear and anxiety that a pandemic brings. Thank you
0: for your wisdom and thank you for your time, especially. I know you're very busy. Before we go, um, we normally have a shout-out. Now, I, I explained what a shout-out was. <laughs> and now you're all down and hip with the kids. Um, I'm not pretending to be a kid, by the way. But uh, do you have anyone you'd like to say hello to?
1: Well, I think given our topic we've been talking about, I'd like to, to, to shout-out to my mum and dad because they're in a nursing home and with them are... Uh, uh, thousands of others around this country so perhaps a shout out to all those in nursing homes who who can't have or have had uh, contact with their loved ones or had very limited contact with their loved ones we love you we haven't forgotten you and we can't wait to get back to being with you
0: and i'd add my shout out to my own mother who's just come out of hospital from a a hip replacement and um, seems to be recovering well and it's amazing the healthcare system is still ticking over and this is in victoria too so, shout out to them. That's all for now. Thank
1: you for listening to This Catholic Life.